All right, let's open in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Happy 2014. We're going to look at what the church should look like according to Acts chapter 2 in the year 2014. And this will be an invitation um, for us to consider and ponder, is this how we want to look in this new year? So that's what we're going to do. Pray with me, if you will. Lord, as we open your word tonight, We do so together. We do so as one. And so many across this nation and on this mountain and around the world have done the same today. And God, I pray for them. I pray for us. I pray that your people would be one, Father. That you would forgive us in this room who have been the cause of division or of not loving our neighbor as ourself. Lord, forgive us for dividing your son into many parts and claiming we hold the better half. I pray, Lord, that your son would become in your church one, that we would all worship one Jesus and be centered upon one Jesus. Lord, that your gospel would prevail. And that light would be clear and that truth would lead us and that you'd be our shepherd and you'd guide us in paths of righteousness. Lord, you protect us from error. You protect us from hostility. You protect us from division. Protect us from ourselves. And Lord, build build a body. One body in Christ that magnifies your name to the ends of the earth of every tribe, tongue, and language. And Lord, now tonight here in this room too, unify us, evaporate differences. Give us a love that loses sleep over those hurting within our body. Give us compassion. Give us empathy. Help all of us to show Jesus to each other in the way that we interact with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2014, um, I have a theory that we should do things a little bit differently than I think some of us think about church. Basically this. In 2014, I'm going to tell you guys to stop going to church. (laughs) To stop doing church. And to start being the church. But Brandon, I thought that religious people do church. 
Sunday morning, that's what it's about, or Sunday evening, or whatever in the middle of the week. It's about getting up and raising hands and singing and opening the Bible and taking notes like a good listener, or whatever, and buying CDs to listen to during the week so I can be extra spiritual and putting in money in the tithe box and doing my prayers for missionaries and for uh, the other people around here and talking to a few people. And I'm doing church and I'm doing well. And we have this mentality that the more I do church, the more I am growing in Christ. That it's somehow this act and it's this thing, it's this gig and it's this location and we all file in and we pay our homage and we do our best and we applaud what's good and we boo what's bad and we give our little subtle, you know, preferences to the pastor on the side and, and all these things. And, but I'm asking us to stop doing church to stop thinking that this is something that we work up and that we have to somehow make ourselves presentable and do these things in a certain proper order. And instead that we would realize that the scriptures speak very clearly that we are the church. And so we should therefore work on just being the church. It's not a program. It's not the way that we sing songs or preach texts. It's about the life we are together. So the church, um, what is it? And, you know, there's, there's a difference, right, between churches and the church, a church and the church. And all of us in here are associated with a church. And on Sunday morning, you might go to church A, B, C, or D, and that's a church. And you might come on Sunday nights, and you're here, and you might call this a church. And there's churches all over the place. But there is the capital C church, which is something that is happening across the world, in which Jesus Christ is the head of, and that is one and that is the church. And all of these churches, A, B, C, D, E, and F, all of these are parts of the church. Now, the church, um, in your theology, they talk about what it is and what's the identity and how you describe it. And the Apostle Paul talks about it as a body. The church is a body, meaning there's many parts, but it's all one. It's functioning together and it needs to function uh, together, not against each other. And it's moving like a body. And he also calls it the wife, the bride of Christ, that there is a love and a union between Jesus and his church. And in Ephesians, he also calls it a temple. It's the temple of the living God. That God no longer dwells in a building of wood, stone, gold, but he dwells amongst a people whom he has called and chosen out of the world to be his own. And so there's, there's all those things. And in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus implies that the church is a new wineskin, that it's holding new wine, and because there was an old wineskin that couldn't hold it, it would burst. There's, there's different... Ideas out there. Ephesians 2, uh, Paul says that the church is a new humanity. It's no longer identified by race or gender or tribe or language or nation, but it's a new humanity of Gentiles and Jews together. And so the Bible talks about the church in many pictures, 
but to bring it all together and to simplify the image of what I see the church being in the context of the world today, I would say that the church is a community of life. It's a community of life, meaning it's built up of people who have something in common and do stuff together in common. And this people represent, live out, enact, and embody life. So it's a community of life in a world of death. And that's our context. The news, death, death, death. Divorce, division, strife, envy, debt. Death is everywhere in our news, in our world. And this is the context we find ourselves in. And the church is placed like a colony in the center of this world of death to become life within the death. And that these people would be together and be this community of life. And there, in the midst of all of this, there's hope and there's a way And that there's people that can leave the darkness, leave the death, leave the division, and find light, life, and unity. That is the identity of the church I want to propose, is that we are a community of life in a world of death. We're bearing the light in the darkness all around us. We are bringing a unity in a world, tearing at the seams of division So with that in mind, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. And we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day... Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So Acts chapter 2. We have here, um, as Calvary Chapel has used this passage as sort of a uh, foundation for the church for years and years and years. And we see here this setting of believers. And what was the early church doing, we ask? Well, here it is. Here's what they were doing. They were teaching the apostles' doctrine. And they were keeping the fellowship. And they were breaking bread. And they were doing prayers. And they were seen together and sharing their stuff. And going to the temple. And going to their homes. And people saw good things happening amongst this community. 
Now, people will tell you, or you might have heard before, wondered yourself, what is this? Some sort of communism under the name of Jesus? They're selling all their stuff and they have everything in common. And no, that's not the case at all. And I'm not telling us to do this, that we're to become a community of communism in a world of individualism or whatever. (laughs) That's not exactly the case because all of the believers here still owned individual property. It says that they were giving, and we have example of that in chapter 4, that they were selling and giving their stuff as need arose. It wasn't this mandate that if you're part of the church, give up all your stuff. We'll hoard it and we'll distribute it evenly. There was willful surrender and generosity of the owners themselves to give what they have to help those in need. In short, they're modeling Jesus Christ himself, who gave of what he had to those in need willfully and sacrificially. And if this was communism, there would be no reason for Paul to give commands of, you know, tithing and be hospitable and be generous because there'd be nothing to give and there'd be nothing to invite people to if we were all just, this is owned by the church, (laughs) by some institution or some dude. This was willful surrender and giving up. This is hospitality. This is generosity. And so we see them enacting in this way when needs arose. And so, yeah, people had homes, people had stuff, but they did not hold exclusive right to their stuff. They knew who it belonged to, God. And they knew that it was free to give to those who needed it. And so we also see that not only are they um, generous with their possessions, but they are, verse 46, day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And in verse 44, we see that all who believed were together. And so I think very obviously what we see when we look at this is there's this, you can't miss the fact that there's a togetherness about the church. That whether they're in their homes or they're eating or they're praying or having teachings or they're at the temple, it's saying that they're doing this together. John Donne was an old poet and a Christian poet. And he had a poem called No Man is an Island. And this is how the first part of the poem goes. It says, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece to the continent, a part of the main. No man is an island. He's using this imagery of land. No man stands on his own, surrounded by water, apart from the rest. But every man is a piece of the continent. He's a part of the main. He isn't able to stand on his own. And we see the early church holding to this idea that we're, none of us are islands here. In fact, we need each other in a hostile world of death. We need to be life together. We're not islands. We're, we're a continent. We're a body. We're part of Christ. And we need to do this with one another. There's a togetherness. And in their homes, it wasn't just, this is my house. <laughs> Stay out. It was, we are going to 
hang out in this home or go and eat bread in this home. And even when they go to the temple, interesting, right? They, they went to the temple. When they go to the temple, it's together. I think that that's a, that's a huge point is that the temple was a public location, Contrary to the homes, right? Homes are private. The temple is public. And here we see the church together in private and together in public. In the public sphere where everybody can see. They're not just going, I see Peter, I'm going to the temple. It's we are going to the temple together. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, we know the story of the Tower of Babel. And this was a scene where humanity was saying, hmm, um, let's make a name for ourselves. So let's gather everyone together and pile up all of our resources. And they come all together and they're seeking to make a name for themselves. So they're building this tower upward, trying to, trying to reach it to the skies. And God comes down and disperses them by changing up their language. You remember that? And that's why it's called Babel, because Babel means confusion. And hence we get our word like Babel. There's a lot of Babel happening there in the ears of the people. As they dispersed and divided and couldn't agree and couldn't even understand one another. And then, thousands of years later, we turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we see a reversal happening People are no longer being dispersed because of language. But on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they're being united. And it says that every man, and it names several different nations here, every man heard the words in his own language. And here a multiplicity of languages are becoming one. And that's what this group of people in Acts 2.42, our text, that's where they came out of. There's a togetherness because this is the reversal of the division and dispersal of the world at large. It's a disconnected world. It's a world divorced from one another. Not only in marriages, but nation against nation can't stand each other. Neighbor against neighbor argue about where the dog is doing its business and who's parking where and all these things about your apples are falling in my yard or I don't know. I have great neighbors, so I don't hear all that. (laughs) But the world at large is separation from one another. But the church, there's a togetherness. There's something different happening. God is bringing everything into harmony. And so I like that they didn't only do this in their homes, but in public as they went to the temple. And you could say, I guess, that, you know, you come to a building like this as we do a weekly service, like this is our temple, I suppose you could say that. But rather, Paul says that the church itself is God's new temple. And it would seem to me that a temple, they're going to the Jewish cultural center. This is a public place where all Jews went. And it was the center of religion and economy and culture for the Jews. And so they're going there together and this, to me, this is what the church should do, is not only we meet, you know, in private little sectors and like, oh, this is great, it's all Christians and la, 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 but the Christians go together into the private sec- public sector. 
And Jesus, did he not say that where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them? See, the church is not just, this is the geographical location, but it's that wherever believers are seen together, we have the spirit of God. We have the church. And so as two or three go to hot shots and discuss, you know, the sermon that they had just heard, the church is in hot shots. As a few go down the hill to Trader Joe's and get their grocery supplies together, the church is in Trader Joe's. As the church goes and enjoys a concert from one of their favorite bands together, the church is invading that concert. And as the church gathers, uh, as, as a couple believers gather in someone's home, the church is invaded at home. You see what's happening is that there's a togetherness in this early church. And this togetherness went everywhere. It wasn't, let's come together and hear somebody talk about some cool stuff and some cool songs. And then let's all go home and mind our own business the rest of the week. It was none of that. There was none of, this is how I spend my free time. TV and books and and whatever internet and social media and we're together but we're not through social media and all this like this isn't the way people would spend their time in the early church it's we're off work what are you guys doing tonight what would the church look like if we spent less time (laughs) vegetating alone yet together (laughs) And more time actually being together, going somewhere, whether it's your house or somewhere else. What would happen if Sunday night Bible study said Sunday night isn't enough? Let's bring the church to the sports grill. So Adam, what are you doing Wednesday night? Kind of a thing. I have something, so sorry. (laughs) There's a togetherness. And I'm, I'm asking us to, to rethink our American individualism and to think, not buy into the philosophy that church is this right now. Because what, what this is here is we're doing church. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to dismantle this. I'll get to this in just a second. This is important. But the church doesn't happen here. The church happens in the togetherness as we go into life in the world. A community of life, bringing life to death. So there's that togetherness that we see. And to me, the big idea as I look at that is that's, that's what I'm seeing is the picture of togetherness. And there's a lot of details. So let's touch on these details just a little bit. I said that we're a community of life in a world of death. And there's a togetherness. That's what a community is, right? They're together. Um, so let's take a look at some of the things that they did. And, and I want to show you that these things are community shaping. It's togetherness shaping. It, it's helping all of that flow together. So we look at verse 42. And you've heard some people maybe refer to this as the fantastic four. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So there you have it, those four items, the fantastic four, as some have called it. Others have called it the dynamic duo. And that's actually the route I'm going to go with tonight. Here's why. The dynamic duo is first teaching of the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. 
the other two, the breaking of bread and the prayers, seem to be describing further what fellowship looks like. So we have the apostles, the teaching of the apostles' doctrine, so teaching, and we have fellowship, further explained by breaking of bread and praying together. So these are the dynamic duo we are going to look at for 2014. Teaching, fellowship. So number one, teaching. This is the act of shaping togetherness. This is how community is shaped and formed. Teaching. As we take this Bible and we explain the mind and the heart of God. And as we come together as individuals, we're hearing these words. And they are shaping our minds and our hearts and our worldview and our beliefs. And it's being done simultaneously. That we, you and I, and the person next to you, if we are believing and receiving the word of God with faith, our minds are becoming one together. As Paul urged the church, be of one mind. And that is how this happens. The community is formed and shaped through the teaching of the word of God. So we come together and we are becoming one. We're being unified. We're being formed and shaped as we're hearing what God is calling us to be, how to think, how to live, how to behave. And we're conforming ourselves to his standard, to his way. This is what I want my community to look like. And so we come and we hear in the teaching is shaping us and is forming us. And as we accept and believe in faith, we're coming closer together in one mind now, one mind doesn't mean we all love the same things and think the same way and do the same hobbies and dress the same way. I forbid that wholeheartedly. As you know, if you heard the last message of Jeremiah, you would know I wholeheartedly forbid that. Go get the CD if you don't know what I'm talking about. But one mind deals with the fact that we all have the same purpose and we serve the same master, the master who enables diversity within unity. And the teaching is what brings us together. Now, this teaching is done in many ways. As you guys know, between Mike, myself, and Pastor John, there's, there's different ways of communicating. And there's different formats of teaching the word. Some people sit around and have an in, interactive Bible study, as uh, Dr. Bravo does Amen, on Thursday nights. And some do it in a home, in a more casual setting, like uh, the young adults do on Monday nights and the youth group does on Wednesday nights. And then there's a formal format, right? Like we are here and uh, like the youth group does on Sunday nights upstairs. And um, there's the casual conversation over coffee like Denny will have with whoever dares talk to him about theology. You'll have a, a, an intel intellectual conversation and there's teaching happening in many different ways. We have the Bible college that happens during the week. The semester starts in March. Um, there's different kinds of teaching that's happening, right? And so the, the church teaches, um, I, I identify three different ways. And one is what we call it. It's called teaching. And teaching is really about helping people cope with the plethora of information that they're overwhelmed with. 
And so, you know, people open up the Bible like, wow, where do I start? Genesis, Exodus is horrible. Leviticus is worse. I'm done. Or they, oh, Revelation. Okay. Oh, that's weird. And (laughs) there's a bombardment, right? What teaching does is it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You have pieces all over and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. You have it there before you, but you're like, teaching helps connect piece to piece. So that in time, teaching is revealing a picture. So here we are, we're, you know, overwhelmed with all this stuff and all the things in life. And teaching says, hey, this is where this fits. This is where that fits. See, this one, you're trying to jam that in where it doesn't belong. So teaching tries to bring everything into connectedness, connects the dots. It brings the puzzle together. And then Jesus did that a lot in the gospel of Matthew as he tells the Jews, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing and this is what your law said and this is what I'm doing and I'm connecting, I'm bringing the puzzle together for you so you see the picture. And then Jesus was also a preacher and so does the church. Now, preaching to me, bad preaching is street corner preaching, you know, bullhorn and soapbox. Uh, you're a sinner, repent, or God's going to bring a comet and hit your head or something. That, that's not preaching that, I don't, it's, preaching, the way Jesus did it, it was saying, open your eyes to what God is doing right now, right now. And in the gospel of Mark, he preaches and he says, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, wake up to what God is doing right now at this moment. This is where it is. Preaching is meant to open eyes to see where God is and what he's up to at that moment. So teaching is often universal and timeless, right? Because there's truth and there's facts and stuff, and those are always there. But preaching smells the aroma of the moment. It knows what God is presently calling us to do or what he's up to. And preaching shows that way and says, there it is. It's the timely message. The prophets were preachers. They had a timely message. So we're not only bringing the puzzle pieces together, but we're saying, look, this is what God is doing right now. This is what he's asking us to do. This is the word for the moment. And then um, there's, I don't, you know, what do you call this? But it rhymes, it works. Reaching. (laughs) You got teaching and preaching and reaching, reaching, reaching. Jesus does this a lot in the gospel of Luke as he's walking through Samaria. Unbelieving people, they were in Samaria, at least believing in the wrong stuff, the Jews thought. And so he goes and engages them. And you'll notice when you read the gospel of Luke, there are tons and tons of parables, stories. This is reaching. It's the use of imagination. It's changing one's vocabulary to fit where a person is at. It's not saying, you know, well, the transubstantiation of the Trinity, of the divine sovereignty of the cosmos, that God, uh, immaculate conception, uh, it's not using those big words. I'm like, you're from a church, aren't you? <laughs> it's reaching people where they're at. And Jesus did that with story. Because stories connect people. It reaches people. 
we all know what it is to face conflict and plot. And Jesus to a group of farmers says, there once was a farmer who went to go out cast seed, right? Reaching people. So teaching happens on many levels. And all of these things should be happening within the church as we teach, preach, and reach. We are being formed into togetherness, into a community of life. And unfortunately, in this age, consumerism has plagued the teaching part of the church. You know what I mean? We have such access to teaching via internet, the church down the street, podcasts, CDs, study Bibles, books, that we become teaching, preaching, and reaching snobs. And it's no longer that teaching is meant to form the community. And it's more teaching is meant to appeal to the flavor I like. And so we all want to know who has the biggest podcast. Who has the best-selling book. Which church has the most dynamic preaching. And we are fickle. I'm... Bored with that preacher now. This one's more exciting. This one, oh, yeah. And we are consumers about the word of God. I don't like what he has to say, but I like what he has to say. Now, granted, you know, there's discernment, right? There's things that you shouldn't consume, and there's things that you should consume. But we become this, like, we've been just overfed and we're like, I just don't like, you know, he's just a little too much salt on that. A little too much marinade. And we get so snobby and picky. Consumerism is all about what I want. And now we are actually dismantling the purpose of the teaching of the word of God. It's now becoming about what I want versus what God is forming and shaping this particular community into. So use the sermon, use the Lord's leading when it comes to that. Because of course there are times when there are certain teachings and not good teachings. But use the sermon where you're to be. And don't do it just because, you know, I'm a preaching snob and I know exactly how it's supposed to be done. I just don't know how to do it. <laughs> That's the way we're all best critics, right? <laughs> and then finally about teaching. Um, teaching is done because it's bringing us together. And it should be done together. The word is given. There's teaching, there's preaching, there's reaching. Yet nothing happens until the seed that has been sown into the heart grows. And Jesus told the parable, right? The parable of the sower and the seed. And he said there was a farmer that went out and cast seed. And, you know, remember this one that fell on, the, on the, the path and the birds plucked it, some in the gravel, and it grew fast, but the sun withered it, and some in the thorns, and it grew, but it was choked out. And finally, the seed that went on the good soil, and it grew, and it became fruitful. And I was reading that last night in Mark chapter 4, and it, it, it hit me as broad as daylight. Whoa. The word of God needs to be cultivated within us, lest it be snatched, withered, or choked. 
And here is the seed being cast. And so often it hits us and we go home and veg and do our individualism and, and whatever. And nothing ever about the teaching that's meant to shape the community has happened. It just like water through a pipe through your ears. How does it get absorbed? How does it get cultivated? Soil needs tilling. It needs water. It needs sunshine. It needs care. It needs plucking of weeds. It needs to exterminate the pests. Keep the raccoons away. So we, as the word is being sown, we cultivate it with one another. We remind each other or review with each other, or question with one another. There is more to be said and done, and it's cultivated together. So that's the teaching. Number two, it says the fellowship, defined by breaking of bread and prayers. Now, fellowship. Fellowship is a a really hard word because the Greek is actually koinonia, and fellowship is a partial translation. In koinonia, fellowship is part of it, but it's not the whole of it. So koinonia is more than whatever we call fellowship, which we kind of throw that word around a lot, right? We have the donut fellowship (laughs) or the fellowship hall. I don't know. We just throw it like movie and fellowship night. Uh, So it's part of it. And what we're seeing is there's this koinonia So it means it's coming together. It means breaking bread. It means praying together. Koinonia, my professor at school told me, simply means shared Christian life. There's something in common and it's being interchanged. It's being exchanged with one another. There's an openness. That's what the breaking of bread is. Breaking of bread means home. It means meal. It means common everyday stuff. It means that we get together and we break bread What does that mean? Somebody owns a home. Somebody invites people into your home. Somebody makes the food for the people coming to your home. It's hospitality. It's generosity. The recipients have to exercise humility and gratitude. And and you talk over it. And you're sharing something in common with one another. And you're sharing of your house and your private life and sphere. And you're bringing them in. And there's something that happens over the food. And the early church, when they did communion, it wasn't um, so much... Communion to the early church would have been what we do at 5 o'clock, not what we do, what we're going to do right after this message. It was breaking of bread. They ate together and said, this is because of what Jesus did for us, that in this moment we are all common because we're all sinners saved by grace by the one who died for us. And we are now going to eat in celebration of the fact that we're forgiven and he rose from the dead. And according to church history, the early church would actually fast on Friday and then come together on Sunday and eat and break bread. They are repeating the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so to them, breaking bread, this was communion. Wherever Christians eat together, God is there. Jesus is revealed in their midst. That is the communion. Now, I understand, you know, we do the cracker and the, I'm not saying we do away with that because that's economical. But man, when you have people at your house and you break bread with another Christian, communion. This is koinonia. And... The prayers. Um, prayer, believe it or not, is an act of koinonia. 
we often think of our prayer closet and we've got our list of things to pray for and people to pray for and the and and we go and we pray for that and but there's a, a togetherness about prayer too when the church prays together it's different than your private prayer private prayer yeah we lay down all these personal things but when the church comes together to pray it's an altar. It's the altar where we sacrifice self for the perfection of the whole. There becomes less of me and more of the whole. Not that you become absorbed into the whole, but you become one with the whole. Still yourself, but less of your ego self, less of your flesh, less of your pride and more of who God's calling you to be. And there in prayer, as we come together, we're all surrendering and submitting ourselves to the one we're praying to. And we're saying, we need you, Father. Did not Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount to pray in Matthew 6, pray, our Father, give us this day, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, there's a koinonia in the church praying and it's not about me. It's about us and we and our father. And it's not about telling God what to do. It's about us surrendering and asking God what to do. That's the koinonia that happens in our praying. We're praying for and with one another So with all of that said, um, when this happens, if Sunday night Bible study and if all the other Sunday morning fellowships on the mountain were to start becoming a community of life in a world of death, they begin to share life and to be formed in a togetherness by teaching and to practice the togetherness through koinonia. What would we see? What would that say? I believe that what it would say and what we would see is a foreshadow. A foreshadow of what's to come. The new heaven, the new earth in Revelation where creation is no longer divided and at odds and the wolf no longer consumes the lamb. I think it's the lion and lamb. You know what I mean? And all of that stuff is happening. Nations are no longer warring with one another, but there's a unity and there's a togetherness of all of creation, the new heaven, the new earth. When the church lives in togetherness as a community, the life of the future is being foreshadowed in the death of the present. We're foreshadowing what's to come. <laughs> think, think, think about it. We have so many people here that you would not normally go out of your way to see. No offense, but it's the truth. <laughs> we have people that gather from all different walks of life. In a church, you have a wealthy businessman and a janitor. 
And in the world, that seems two completely different, two different worlds. But to God and to the church, we're one. We're together. And that is the foreshadow of what's to come. In the church, we don't have prerequisites. I can't speak right now. <laughs> prerequisites. It's not a club where if you meet these requirements, you're welcome. The only thing that a church requires, the church is a people with one mind. All it takes is one mind. That's Jesus. The mind of Christ. And anybody can be there. People from different cultures can gather around that. And do. It's universal. It's global. It's invisible to us right now, right? We don't see what's happening in the church at large and in China and in Africa and in Europe and in Asia and in South America and in North America. We only see our little window here in the mountains. But this is happening all around the world. Christians with Christians together, the church here, the church there, the church there, people being the church, breaking bread, prayers, teaching, koinonia, it is everywhere. And how much of this is a part of us, it's hard to see. But there's a day when all will be together, worshiping Christ in the new heaven and new earth. And then we will see we were one the whole time. So can I ask us to stop doing church and being snobs and picky about who does it the best and start being the church formed in teaching and practicing through koinonia that life can invade a world of death because there's a community that doesn't just talk about it, but embodies it. That's how you beat relativism and a pluralistic society. Many individuals embodying one message. You can't say that's true for you when a whole community does God's work. So Father, I pray that you would bring indeed a heart of unity a mind of singleness, a passion of purity, that indeed we would love our neighbor as ourself and become a community in that way. And Lord, as we partake in communion now, as we become one at the foot of your cross, eating the same thing, coming as the same sinners, forgiven equally by the same grace, by the same God, help us to love each other as equally. Help us to become one as the same communion enters all of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.